0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. I'm going to call this False Prophets and Teachers Part 2. Part 1 was our context, verses 1 through 11 of 2 Peter 2, where Peter unloads on false prophets and teachers. He continues his jeremiad against these nasty people in the last... 11 verses of the chapter. So we start now in verse twelve, Second Peter 2. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, speak blasphemies about things they don't understand, and in their destruction they too will be destroyed. The but there shows that these false teachers are in contrast to the angels mentioned in the previous verse, verse 11, the good angels who didn't slander heretics. I guess I should read verse 11 for you so you can see what that is. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. Do not bring a slanderous charge against the glorious ones. That's a complicated scripture. Many people say that means that uh, angels do not bring a slanderous charge against evil angels by going to Jude and seeing the parallel passage where you don't have Michael slandering Satan when he was fighting with him over the body of Moses. Now, that's a whole bunch of complicated stuff, but the point is, is compared to these, these... angels godly angels who don't bring a slanderous charge against the glorious ones whoever the glorious ones are these good angels in contrast to them we have these people like irrational animals these false teachers creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed now Peter calls these false teachers irrational animals. He might be poking fun at them, ironically, as the NIV Study Bible points out, because these proto-Gnostic heretics that Peter was dealing with may have been boasting in their superior elitist knowledge, as Gnostics always did. Their creatures of instinct, brute beasts, have no capacity for rational thought. And this is possibly another jab at the proto-Gnostics who claim to have knowledge. No, they're just wandering around like animals following their instincts. Not thinking because they're too dumb to think. And, of course, irrational animals, creatures of instinct, are like wild animals. And when they're caught, they're destroyed. Like a tiger that's starting to kill you or a lion. That's what happens to wild animals. They're caught and destroyed. And that's what's going to happen to you too, heretics. You're going to be destroyed. Peter says that. Creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. These feral blasphemers are going to be destroyed. They speak blasphemies about the things they don't understand. Now... Who were they blaspheming? These false teachers. Well, they could be blaspheming angels, or actually, what well, they could not be—they might not be blaspheming good angels. They might be elevating false angels, Gnostics tended to worship angels, and by doing so, they blaspheme God. But if so, they—they are talking about things they don't understand because they don't understand true angels. Colossians two eighteen: Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen. Talking about things you don't know about, Gnostics. Talking about angels, worshiping angels and thus blaspheming God because they don't even understand the angels they claim to be pumping. That's a speculation, of course. Other people speculated they were speaking blasphemies about the civil authorities, saying we don't need to obey the civil authorities. And they didn't understand a true authority. They could be talking about church leaders, that they're blaspheming God because they're teaching disobedience to church leaders, or maybe even the gospel. They're preaching disobedience to the gospel, which, of course, they don't understand. But whatever it is, they're speaking blasphemies, and in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. Now, that's a funny way of saying that. I became curious about that, so I looked up a the NIV translation, which is more colloquial, and it just says, like animals, they too will perish. This in their destruction, they will be destroyed. That sounds like a Hebraism to me. Kind of a funny way of saying it, but it's very poetic. In their destruction, they too will be destroyed. And the point is, he's mentioned destroyed twice and destruction once in this one little verse. These bad guys are going down, folks. And that's something that really ought to comfort us. Because I'm telling you, these these heretics, that these cult leaders, these false teachers, enough to drive people who love the truth crazy, but they're going down. God will put up with it, but not forever. We go to 2 Peter 2.13, these false teachers, suffering harm is the payment for unrighteousness when they're destroyed. They suffer harm, the harm is extreme harm, they're, they're destroyed, as payment for their unrighteousness. You know, unrighteousness has with it its automatic punishment. Sin has itself as its punishment. You sin, and the thing that you do causes a breach in God's moral order, and then that thing come back, comes back to bite you. For example, you smoke pot enough, how many brain cells you killed or crack cocaine or whatever. Let's say you knock up a prostitute and you catch an STD. It's just amazing how, if you really think about it, most bad actions in this world have bad consequences. It's the deceptiveness of sin that thinks you're going to get away with it and have a good time and nothing's going to come down the pike to harm you later. Oh, yes, it will. Well, these false teachers, I'm sure, didn't realize they were going to be harmed, but yes, they are. They're going to be destroyed. they considered considered a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Most people carouse at night, but these people were so blatant and so egregiously awful that they carouse in the daytime. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says this, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So typically, people that carouse and get drunk do it at nighttime. But these people are so brazen about their sin, they're doing it, they're doing it in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions. Now, what kind of deceptions are they delighting in? Well, here's some options. Their deceitful lust. Ephesians 4.22. You took off your former way of life, Paul says to the Ephesians. The old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. The flesh is deceitful. Riches are deceitful. The reason flesh is deceitful is because it always feels good when you do it. But then afterwards, ooh, when you wake up like getting drunk, then the next morning you've got a horrible hangover. That's typically the way this sin works. Deceitful riches, Matthew 13:22. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Why are riches deceitful? Because when you th- got them, you think you're secure and you're not. Your house sitting on its sand foundation is just waiting for the next flood to come along and wipe you out. Jeffrey Epstein was rich. He died a miserable existence in a jail cell in New York where his procurer pal alleged procuripal pal, pal L- glane maxwell is running away they arrested her in this huge mansion that she had bought for she's filthy rich what good's it doing her now riches are deceitful how about self-deception while deceiving others they deceive themselves jameson fawcett and brown say so these bad guys, these bad teachers are delighting in their deception. They think everything's fine. They like their lust. They like their riches. As they feast with you, that's the agape love feast they were doing. As John Gill says, these feasts were done in the home, so these heretics compounded their sin by entering into the intimacy, the most intimate aspects of believers' lives, as they seduced them to destruction. So the feast there is probably the agape love feast, the Lord's Supper which makes their sin even worse to pollute the Lord's Supper, the Holy Meal, as the Chinese call it. We go to verse 14, First, Second Peter 2. They have eyes full of adultery and are always looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. The adulterer there is literally adulterous. They have eyes full of an adulteress. In other words, they got their eyes on a particular woman and thinking, ooh, I want to get her. They wanted sex with every woman they saw. I am speaking... I am thinking now of a certain president of the United States, which we had two presidents ago. I think it was two presidents ago. I'm speaking in the summer of 2020. You can figure it out. I won't mention his name. But that gentleman would take anything from 18 to 80. He didn't know the difference between a woman and a lady. Always looking for sin. They just can't live without it. They seduce unstable people. If Christians were stable, they wouldn't be seduced, by the way, but in other words, you do have a defense against these false teachers, just don't believe what they teach. Well, how do I know what they're teaching is true or not? Study the Bible. Pray. You know, the fundamental things of the Christian life. Find Christian mentors who have your best interest at heart, who treat you like they're spiritual children, and you're not going to go astray. But if you're unstable, you can get seduced by these creepy people. They have their hearts trained in greed. You know, they were they were in the Olympics of greed. They didn't just take greed nonchalantly. They trained for it so they could find more money and get more money. They were Olympic greed chasers. Gold and girls. They have eyes full of adultery girls, and they have their hearts trained in greed. Gold. Those are the two of the famous three dreams that will trip up ministers of the gospel. Gold and girls. And the other one is glory, seeking for pride. Now, the illicit desires for money and sex are quite prominently condemned in Scripture. I used to tell people, I have told people this, you understand money and sex, you have got 95% of all the problems you'll ever face in life taken care of. Now these bad guys, these false teachers and prophets, were children under a curse, Peter says. The Young's Literal Translation says children of a curse, and because of that, I guess that's probably one of those genitives, you know, subjective or objective genitives, you don't know which way to go with it. So Young's Literal just puts it down there in the genitive, children of a curse. But there are two options. It could be children who are cursed, and that's what the majority view is, because most of the English translations say they're children who are cursed. Gill suggests that it could be children that do cursing. Children of a curse, children who bring you a curse. Go either way. Either way is true. They're destined for destruction. I'm going to assume they're under a curse, so that means they're cursed, destined for destruction. So, you stable Christians, you don't need to worry about these guys. And it doesn't mean you've got to be nonchalant about them. Peter certainly isn't nonchalant. He's, he's giving them a riot act in, in chapter 2 of Second Peter. So I'm not saying that we should be lackadaisical about it, but we don't need to worry about it. They are, they are beaten. They're destined for destruction. They're cursed. Second Peter 2, 15 through 16. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke for his transgression a donkey that could not talk, spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. Now this is the story, the famous story of Balaam the talking, and Balaam the false prophet and his talking donkey. This of course is the story that skeptics love to throw at Christians. They say, see there, it's a fable, it's a fairy tale. Well, no, it's not actually. But before we get to that, let's refresh our memory about this, what the story was in the Old Testament. Balaam, was a prophet that lived somewhere up on the Euphrates River, I assume up in Syria somewhere, and Moab to the south in the Arabian desert there on the east of the Dead Sea. The king of Moab was facing a problem. He's got this huge mass of Israelites on his border, and he doesn't want them to go through. He's scared that he's going to get conquered. So he figures he'd hire Balaam for money, get Balaam down there from the Euphrates River, come down there to, to Moab and curse the Israelites. Well, what happened was he got he went on down there to curse the Israelites, and on the way, his donkey stopped and complained to him. Numbers twenty-two twenty-eight. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, "What have I done to do you that you have beaten me these three times?" Balaam had beaten the donkey, <laughs> so uh, Balaam uh, sort of was caught up by that, by that, and he ended up prophesying the truth instead of the error. But the point is, is that Balaam was looking for money. He. He loved the wages of unrighteousness when he went down there to collect money from Moab to curse the Israelites. But instead, he got rebuked by God. And so the point is, you false teachers, you love loving all the money you're getting, teaching this stuff and getting people to pay you for it. Well, guess what? God's going to kick you in your rear. You are headed for destruction. You are cursed. You are finished. That's what his point is. Now, let's look at some details. Balaam has said the son of Bosor, but actually in Numbers two. 22 through 24. In Numbers 22, more precisely, he's called Pithor, not Bosor. So there's some complicated reasons why that got changed. John Gill has a complicated explanation for the name change, which I didn't even bother to write down. It was so complicated. Adam Clark says the difference in this name seems to have arisen from mistaking one letter for another in the Hebrew name. And, you know, that could be a manuscript problem. I don't know. It's a minor point. So Beton, the son of Bosor, of Pithor, You know, when you go from language to language, words get screwed up all the time. Like, the city in China is Shanghai, but when when we get to America, it's Shanghai. It's not Shanghai. And every time I hear Shanghai, my skin crawls, because I got so used to hearing Shanghai the way it's supposed to be said. There is no Shang in Chinese. But Americans don't know that, and so they look at the English and they say Shanghai. Well, you know, that's the sort of thing that happens when you go from language to language over time. But at any rate, let's point out... Points of comparison between Balaam and the false teachers. First of all, false teachers wanted to extract money from naive listeners. As the NIV study Bible says, just like Balaam got money for prophesying falsely over Israel. Jude 1 verse 11 mentions this. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain. Talking about false teachers. They have abandoned themselves to the era of Balaam for profit. Jude mentions the for profit. Peter mentions 2 Peter 2 verse Fifteen mentions the wages of unrighteousness. Isaiah 56, 11, These dogs have fierce appetites; they never have enough, and they are shepherds who have no discernment. All of them turn to their own way, every last one for his own gain. So a lot of times you have leaders who are in it for the money. That's an old story, is it not? So that's the first point of comparison. Balaam wanted money. These false teachers want money. Second point is it was humiliating for Balaam to get rebuked by a lowly donkey. The false teachers. We're just as stupid as Balaam was. If Balaam gets rebuked by a donkey, you false teachers are just as dumb. In other words, we have a dumbass prophet who was rebuked by a dumbass. And you false teachers are just as big a dumbass as Balaam was. Now, let's go to the apologetic point. The skeptics love to say, oh, donkey donkey, that's a fable. That just shows the Bible's full of fables. Well, first of all, it's not a fable because of a fable. If you've read Aesop's fables enough, you've got animals who have intelligence, who have human characteristics, and they have morals, and, they, and the fact that the fable teaches you a moral. There's nothing in this passage that makes it look like a fable. It's an historical account of a prophet going from one country to the next. The donkey never takes on the aspects of a human being. He just talks. Now, we're going to see here, it wasn't him talking, it was God talking. So that's one another reason why it's not a fable. You know, I have heard demons take over human voices and talk. The girl's name was Pam. She was full of demons, and the demons had blacked her out. She wasn't conscious of what she was doing. They made her hands grab her throat. There was gray foam coming out of her mouth, just like in the movies, like in The Exorcist. And she's saying, and I was saying, this girl's a Christian I think I was wrong about that but I was saying to the demon this girl's a Christian and she, and the demon was saying no she's not she's mine she's mine well I was talking to a demon and that demon was using a human voice now you might find that hard to believe but I'm telling you I can tell you where it happened when it happened who I can tell you the girl's name I you know it happened I know it happened I'm no dumb witness I'm a very credible witness I tell you it happened So when I see that, is it so hard for me to believe that God took hold of a donkey's voice and made him talk? Again, he's trying to make a point. God's making a point. You highly exalted prophet. Here's your dumb ass speaking to you. So maybe you better listen because you ain't got any more sense than this dumb ass. It was God speaking through the donkey. In fact, we see in verse 16, we can show that. A donkey that could not talk spoke with a human voice. A human voice, not a donkey's voice, but a human voice. As an apologetics writer, Dave Miller says, this shows it wasn't the donkey speaking with its own voice. It was a human voice. Donkeys don't have voices. God spoke with a human voice via the donkey's mouth. Now, that donkey restrained the prophet's irrationality. Again, irrationality, another poke at the Gnostics and all their vaunted knowledge, or the proto-Gnostics. But this donkey restrained the prophet's irrationality. Neither did the donkey say, "Uh uh-uh, Balaam, you're not going any further. No, the donkey didn't say that. The donkey just said, what have I done to you that you've beaten me these three times? So it wasn't what the donkey said, but it was the very fact that the donkey was speaking. that took Balaam up because donkeys don't speak. Balaam knew there was something supernatural going on here. And it made him stop, made him think. Let's take one more look at the word irrationality in verse 16. Irrationality is often connected with immorality. Verse 15, these false teachers are said to have abandoned the straight path and in verse 16, they have, the prophets are said to be irrational. So moral depravity and intellectual stupidity is often connected in the Bible. Intellectual degeneracy is often coupled with moral degeneracy. Not always now, because sometimes you've got very moral people who are still ignorant and foolish as they suppress the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness. But a lot of times the two go together. Second Peter 2.17, these people are springs without water, mist driven by a whirlwind. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. A spring without water is a cruel deception. A traveler is thirsty. He's traveling. Maybe he's going through the desert. He sees a mirage. Maybe it's a spring. And he gets, or maybe it's not a mirage. Maybe it's just an oasis. The trees are around. I've seen these oasis in the Negev Desert in Israel. And they've got these palm trees around. the green spot in the middle of the brown desert. And you go there and you look and there's no water. It's very depressing. Well, these false teachers taught Doctrines that sounded good at first, but they were deceptive because there was no, no life in them, no water. Mist driven by a whirlwind. A mist is a cloud that's near the ground, and it's water, and you go to it and you say, Oh, if it just hits the ground in a raindrop, I can drink some water. But then the mist is driven away by a whirlwind, and the water never hits the ground, and you never get your thirst quenched. That's perfect. a perfect description of these false teachers. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. And what is the gloom of darkness? The NIV Study Bible puts it in one word, hell. Now, it's one thing to go to hell for what you've done to yourself, but it's worse when you drag others with you. And that's what these false teachers were doing. There's no place in hell too deep for somebody who takes little innocent lamps and, dra- and drags them away from the truth. Verse 18, Second Peter 2. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. Now I mentioned the connection of intellectual degeneracy with moral degeneracy. Here we have the empty words, intellectual stupidity, and then they got seduction, fleshly desires, debauchery. You see how the two things go together often, and in, in, in Peter's case, they definitely went together. Who were they? Who are these people seducing the fleshly desires? People who have barely escaped from those who live in error. I'm going to assume that those people who have barely escaped are new converts to the faith. They escape from those who live in error. That would be their Jewish non-believing Jewish friends, or maybe they're pagan friends. They just just got away from them by getting saved, barely escaped. and all of a sudden now they're confronted with false teachers in the church that are trying to screw them up. Now, these false teachers are uttering boastful, empty words. These words were boastful, and I'm sure that sounded very impressive to new converts, but they actually, they were words that contained no truth. KGV's got a much better translation here. They're uttering great swelling words of vanity. Now, I've often said that the KGV's got bad translations, and it does, but boy, his is a good one here. Great swelling words of vanity. Sounds like certain politicians I know. Jude 1.16, the parallel passage that talks about false teachers, says this. These people are disc- discontented grumblers, walking according to their desires, their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Adam Clark says they were inflated Tumid and bombastic. Oh, that's great. Tumid. I like to call certain politicians I know tumid. Huh. We go now to Second Peter two nineteen. They the promised them freedom. The false teachers promised them the new converts freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. So the false teachers promised the new converts freedom, and that probably means freedom from moral restraints. Oh, you're free to have sex with whoever you want. You're free to ingest whatever drug you want. wee, But they themselves who are doing that are slaves of corruption because sin creates, makes you a slave. It makes you a corrupt slave. It makes you a slave of corruption which is leading to death. And eventually the wages of sin is death. It, the sin kills you. Watch enough tragic movies about drug addiction or wife abuse or domestic abuse or gambling or you know all those kind of things and there's nothing but bad news that comes out of it folks sin will kill you people are enslaved to whatever defeats them you get beaten by conquered by sin then you are enslaved to it this of course is an ironic contrast to the freedom that these false teachers promised the new converts they promised them freedom but they were slaves Here's an idea of slavery to sin, Romans 6.16. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? Either of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness, as Bob Dylan says, you got to serve someone. You got to serve somebody. You got you can either choose choose to serve sin and be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to Jesus. You got your choice. You can either die or you can live. You got your choice. John eight thirty four. Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. You want to be a slave? Sin. Simple as that. People are enslaved to whatever defeats them, Peter says in verse 19, chapter 2. When one is defeated in battle, he becomes a prisoner of war, as John Gill and Adam Clark say, and Peter is alluding to that. You get beaten by sin, you get captured, you put in a POW camp. Verse 20, 2 Peter 2 For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this verse, of course, is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. If you've ever been involved in Calvinist versus Arminian polemics, I'm going to try to lay out in an objective fashion as I can the contours of that controversy as it relates to this verse. This verse at first glance, is very difficult for Calvinists. So this is one of the Arminians' favorite verse. First of all, well, here's what the problem is. It says, For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that sounds like the false teachers used to be saved. Then they've again become entangled in all these things, this immorality and false teaching, empty words, swelling words of vanity and all that stuff, and sin, and they become a slave of sin and get defeated. The last state is worse for them than the first. Well, then it sounds like they're going to hell. They were saved because they had the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the first part of the verse, and the last part of the verse is they're going to hell. The last state is worse than the first. And so in a superficial reading, the Armenians have a good time with that one. Well, I'm going to address this issue from the standpoint of a, of a Calvinist because that's what I am. I'm going to assume that one cannot lose his salvation. Now, there's a ton of other verses that say that. The most logical thing to me is look at a human analogy. If I have a son, and he goes out and robs a bank, and I don't like what he does, but he's still my son, and think, think of the most heinous sin that that man can commit. He's still my son. Doesn't stop being my son. It's impossible. Likewise, once you get born again by the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit comes in like sperm into your spirit like an egg, and creates a new man, a new creation, are you telling me Jesus is going to kill his new creation? Now, he could chastise the fire out of you. Anybody who, who's been a Christian and, and backslidden knows how... Serious, the chastening hand of God can be, but he 's not going to kill you and destroy you and throw you in hell. So we 're going to assume that. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures about you can't lose your salvation. John 10:28, I give them eternal life, and again, what part of eternal do we not understand? If you know, if you get eternal life and you're saved and then you're backslide and lose that eternal life, the eternal life's not eternal anymore, is it? So that means the life that you got at the very beginning of your life of your spiritual life was not eternal? Because it didn't last. Eternal life means eternal. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish ever. Okay, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, now, you know, that's that's pretty strong. Romans 8.35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? It can affect affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. So, you know, if you know, our medium wants to quote 2 Peter 2.20, I can quote these other verses too. You know, but we don't want to do that. We want to look at 2 Peter 2.20 on its own merits and try to see what peter's talking about here now first of all this knowledge has a lot to do with how we approach this if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ is that saving knowledge well if it is the calvinists are shot right or is it mere intellectual knowledge if it's mere intellectual knowledge that means the false teachers were never saved to start with and so their last state is worse for them than the first because they get greater condemnation, but they didn't lose their salvation So you see, the Armenians will say that these Christians were already, these false teachers were Christians, and then they backslid all the way into hell. And the Calvinists are going to say, no, they never were saved to start with. Well, as a preliminary matter, let me ask this question. The problem for the Calvinist. how can mere intellectual knowledge cause one to escape the world's impurity? Because... The verse says here, 20 2 Peter, Peter, For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that sounds like he's saved because he's escaped the world's impurity. Well, an answer to that might be this. People do, as a matter of fact, outwardly conform themselves to moral codes, even though they're not saved. They do every now and then. Balaam knew what God wanted to be said, as we've just pointed out, but he rejected it. He escaped the world's impurity when he listened to God, but then he rejected it. Well, I don't know. That seems kind of weak. But I'm going to give you a strong argument that these, in just a minute, that these false teachers were not saved ever from the beginning. But before I do, let's take up the Armenian view first. Let's say that it was the false teachers were indeed slaves, indeed saved. Now, I'm going to quote some commentators. I'm not sure whether they're Arminian or not. I assume they are, but I could be wrong, so bear with me on that. But the Ellicott commentary says, the knowledge that Peter speaks of here is of the same nature and complete kind as, the, of, as that spoken in Second Peter 1, verses 2 and 3, and Second Peter 1, verse 8, showing that these men were well-instructed Christians. And then they backslid and assumedly went to hell. will, Ellicott doesn't say that. And that's what I'm saying. Now, let's look at those two scriptures that Ellicott quoted. Scripture showing that knowledge is saving knowledge. Second Peter 1, 2, and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Those are, that's obviously referring to saving knowledge. His divine power has given us everything required for life. Peter continues in chapter 1, verse 3 of Second Peter. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's obviously talking about saving knowledge. We look at verse 8, 2 Peter 1, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those are obviously saved. Now here's another commentator, Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges, that supports Ellicott's view that this knowledge that's spoken of in verse 20, 2 Peter 2, is knowledge, saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's what that commentator says, commentary says, The word for knowledge in the Greek is the compound form epikonosis, which is always used by St. Paul, and he gives a bunch of sites, and has been used by St. Peter, and he quotes those two verses I just read to you, of the highest form of knowledge, which is spiritual as well as speculative. The false teachers had not been all along hypocrites and pretenders. They had once, in the fullest sense of the words, known Christ as their Lord and Savior. So you see, we have some heavy theological support that these believers were, excuse me, that these false teachers were at one time believers. Well, let's just give the Armenians that. It doesn't say that these Christians went to hell. It just says their last state is worse for them than the first. Why couldn't we say that these Christians backslid or apostatized, and then God is now discipling them, making their life miserable on earth, And so their last state is worse for them when they were saved and living an obedient Christian life and being blessed. Well, now they're backslidden and they're being chastised. And so their last state is worse than the first. I don't see why not. So even if even if you give the Armenians the fact that these Christians, that these false teachers were Christians and then backslid, there's nothing in the verse that said they backslid all the way into hell. It just means you could easily say they backslid into a state of chastisement. So already I'm feeling safe and secure as a Calvinist. However, let's go further. Well, let, let me finish. Let me give you some more arguments that these were Christian teachers at one time. We can look at verse 15 in 2 Peter 2. They, these false teachers, have gone astray by abandoning the straight path. They've gone astray. That sounds like they were on the straight path and they left. It sounds like they were Christians. I can answer that and say, well, you know, that's true of everybody. We, like sheep, have all gone astray. You know, I was talking about human beings and not just not just Christians. That's a weak argument, really. 2 Peter 2.22, it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Now, here's another argument that the false prophets were Christian. A dog returns to its own vomit. It sounds like he at one time was not eating his vomit. He was saved. Then he returns to his own vomit. This sounds like a Christian who starts licking up his own vomit, the vomit being a symbol of his sin that he had before he saved. So a dog returning to his own vomit sounds like he's returning to a non-saved state, just like a sow wallowing in the mud a washed sow, returns to wallowing in the mud. He's saved, and then he goes back to wallowing in the mud, so he's unsaved. But that doesn't mean that. It just means that he, the Christian is wallowing in sin. It doesn't mean he's going to hell. It just means he's backslidden. So those two arguments aren't very strong. But the arguments for not, but from the word knowledge are strong. The arguments that Ellicott and the Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges use that say that that knowledge that these people, these false teachers, had used in order to escape the world's impurity, that knowledge shows that that was true saving knowledge. Now, let me, I failed to read this to you here from a man who actually, excuse me, a website, that actually believes that that knowledge is not saving knowledge, but is not, but is um, you know, mere intellectual knowledge. But he makes the point about backsliding. And this is the point I want to make, too, that let's just assume that these false teachers were Christians and let's assume they were being backslidden. Is that plausible? Well, this is what this website learnthebible.org says, quote, this is a tricky subject since the Bible does teach the possibility of true believers going through a time of backsliding. However, God assures us that true believers who backslide will be beset with the chastening hand of God and will never be able to rest in their backslidden condition. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. That's Hebrews 12:6. So this website's position is that yes it is backsliding well his position was it's not backsliding because it looks like they went to hell and so uh, no no christian that's ever chastised by the lord is going to go to hell he's he's going to repent eventually yeah but it doesn't say that they backslide going to hell it just says the last state is worse for them than the first that's just an assumption to say that people are going to hell when they backslide so i still say that it's possible that these people could know jesus and them backslide their situation is now worse than before they backslid but they're still not going to hell. So I, even on the Armenian assumptions, Calvinism is not defeated, in my humble opinion. Well, now let's go to your typical Calvinist argument, though, which is, is that these false teachers were never saved. And let me quote the, fam- the favorite Calvinist verse, or one of the favorite Calvinist verses, 1 John 2, 19, They went out from us. But they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us, which that just shows that you got false hypocrites in the church all the time. So those guys that John was talking about had to conform to Christianity enough to fool the Christians. So they look like Christians, but they really aren't. Now, let me give you the Calvinist argument that the, this knowledge that these false teachers had, this, this knowledge of Jesus Christ, was not saving knowledge. And I think you'll be surprised at how strong this argument is. First of all, Scripture never compares Christians to dogs and pigs. As we mentioned in verse 22, dog returning to his vomit and a washed pig returning to the mire. Well, that's sort of a weak argument. But let's look at the context, which is a lot stronger. So we're going to say these false teachers are Christians. Here's how they're compared to in verses all around our passage here in 2 Peter 2.20. They're called false prophets, false teachers, damnable heresies, denying the Lord that bought them. They are subject to swift destruction. They they walk in pernicious ways. The, the way of truth, they speak evil of the way of truth. They are, covetous, they are covetous. They feign words. They are subject to judgment and damnation. They are compared with demons. They are compared to Noah's day, the world of the ungodly. They are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. They are said to walk in the filthy walk of the wicked. They practice unlawful deeds. They are reserved for punishment as unjust. They walk after the flesh. They despise government. They're presumptuous. They're self-willed. They speak evil of dignities. They're like brute beasts. They're destroyed. They speak evil. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. They win the reward of unrighteousness. They are like those who riot. their spots. their blemishes. They are deceived with their own deceivings. Their eyes are full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They beguile unstable souls. They're cursed. They have forsaken the right way. They've gone astray. Their wells without water. They speak great swelling words of vanity. They're wanton, and they're servants of corruption. Now I ask you, does that sound like a Christian? Q-E-D. Of course not. Doesn't sound like a Christian at all. Here's some other uh, ancillary arguments. Verse 20, Peter says, Our, when he says, The knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He would have said there if he was referring to Christian false teachers backslidden for if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled but he says our Lord and Sa- the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as in us Christians we have a knowledge of Jesus but the false teachers do not so it's ours not theirs that's a little bit weaker argument but it, it is something worth pointing out now. Here's another argument about no. The word is epigenosis, which is an intensive form of gnosis, which means to know. That no, it is used of knowing God personally, or knowing like Adam knew Eve, they knew him she knew him, he knew her sexually, which is personal, not academic. That's true, but no or epigenosis, gnosis and epigenosis are often used of non saving knowledge. Now, the definition for epigenosis, the word that's used here in Second Peter two twenty, is this quote. From Thayer's lexicon, quote, precise and correct knowledge used in the New Testament of the knowledge of things ethical and divine. It's just knowledge, academic knowledge, objective knowledge, not personal knowledge. Now, I'm going to read some other scriptures, five of them, to show scriptures which refer to non-saving knowledge. James 2.19, the devils believe that there is one God. Mark 1.24, I, as a demon speaking, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God, I know you, Jesus. Was the demon saved? Mark 1.34, Jesus suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. Oh, the demons believed in Jesus? Really? Mark 5.6-7, a man possessed with legion devils worshipped Jesus, saying, Jesus, thou son of the most high God. Well, he not only knew Jesus, he worshipped him. Did he believe? Was he saved? Acts 16.16-18, 16, 16 a woman possessed with the spirit of divination said of Paul repeatedly, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Then he cast out that spirit. Those demons confessed that Jesus had the way of salvation. Did they know him personally? No. So knowledge and related words show that some people can say they're Christians and act like they're Christians, but not really be Christians. And when we look at all the bad things that are said about these false teachers, they weren't Christians. And so then if they weren't Christians, the last state is worse for them than the first. The first state was their living on earth in sin. And the last state is they're going to hell, which is worse than living on earth in sin. All right, I think that takes care of it. But now I had another thought. What if Peter here in Second 2 Peter 2.20 is not talking about the false teachers? What if he's talking about the new converts that were being seduced, about to be seduced by the false teachers? So we would read it this way for if having... If these new converts, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of a Lord when they first got saved, they are again entangled in these things and defeated by listening to these false teachers. The last state is worse for them than the first. In other words, they were saved, they were new babes in Christ, and then they got seduced, and now their last state, living in a state of deception, is worse for them than the first when they were babies. I quite frankly think that could very well be what Peter meant, although I have not found one commentator to agree with me. Not that I've read every commentator in the world. Maybe there's somebody out there, but I hadn't found it. And when I say that, I mean I haven't even found one commentator that even mentions it. So this is my idea, and I'm afraid of creative theology the way I'm afraid of creative accountants. So just take that with a grain of salt, but it might be worth looking into. Now, I will give you a problem with this interpretation, which I think is probably kills the interpretation. Verse 21 says this, "For well, It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness then, after knowing it, to turn back. So then Peter would be saying it would be better for them never to have been saved at all than it would be to be deceived by the false teachers and and and, enter and being ushered into an unbelieving state. Well, folks, I'd rather be deceived and saved than not saved at all. So I don't think that's a good answer. I just thought I'd throw that out. Let's go to Second 2 Peter 2.21. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. Assuming the standard Calvinist interpretation, we would read that this way. They knew the way of righteousness. They knew how to get saved. They didn't believe it personally for themselves, but they knew it. And then they turned back away from it by not believing it. Turned back from the holy command, the gospel. They turned back away. Well, it's better not to be saved at all, not having known it, than to have it in front of you, presented to you, and then you turn your back on it. You're worthy of worse condemnation than that. That's like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's worse. It's worse to see miracles done by the Holy Spirit and to turn your back on God than to be ignorant of those miracles and turn your back on God. If you sin against a greater light, the punishment's greater. That's just the way it is. So for these false teachers, they knew the way of truth and then they turned away from it so it'd be better if they never had heard the gospel to start with. I think that makes a lot of sense. The way of righteousness, Peter says, in the early days of Christianity, the faith was known as, quote, the way. Let me read you some scriptures Out of Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, times Christianity is called the way. We never do it today. And requested letters. This is Paul requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Acts 18, 25. This man has been instructed in the way of the Lord. Acts 19, 19. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way. Roman Christian Study Bible capitalizes that one. Also in acts nine two men who belong to the way capital w acts nineteen twenty three during that time there was a major disturbance about the way capital w, not in the Greek capital but in english acts twenty two four I persecuted this way capital to the death paul says acts twenty four fourteen but I confess this to you, I worship my father's God according to the way capital w acts fourteen twenty two since Felix was accurately informed about the way capital w. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I know there's a cult called the way now that might have something to do with the fact that we can't call Christianity the way anymore. You know, every cult uses, or error, uses scriptural phrases. Children of God, that was a big one back in the Jesus movement. How about the word of faith? That's actually the word of faith which is in your heart. That comes up straight out of the Apostle Paul. Go to Second 2 Peter 2.22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. And a sow, after watching itself, wallows in the mud, assuming the Calvinist interpretation. The dog, he heard the gospel, and then he went back to, his, <laughs> to the world. The sow, clean, hears the gospel, turns back to the world, and wallows in the mud. It's not talking about losing your salvation. As the NIV study Bible says, the dog is still a dog before and after he eats his vomit. He's still a dog, because we're going to assume that the dog is not saved. And a sow, an unsaved person after washing itself, gets himself all clean, ready for church. Big hypocrite. Then he wallows in the mud. He goes and listens to all this proto-gnostic nonsense. The change was merely cosmetic for the pig. (laughs) I have an interesting question. Do dogs really eat their own vomit? I think they do. I've never, I think I've seen it, but I can't remember for sure. But I believe they do. You know. This is this is a proverb actually that Peter's quoting Proverbs twenty six eleven. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. And Peter apparently is referring to that proverb. The writer of the proverb must have seen enough dogs to know that they eat their own vomit. Now a pig wallowing in the mud. If you ever watch pigs, and I've seen pigs, and I, it's rare to see a clean pig. I, they just love mud. They just love it. I remember one time I climbed a pig pen's fence out in the woods somewhere, and I didn't see that big old mother pig over there because it was covered in mud, and that darn pig came after me, scared the ever loving blazes because my mother pig, a mother sow, whoo! You don't ever want to mess with one of those babies. But that mother pig was just covered in mud. They love it. Just like false teachers love sin, licentiousness, lust, empty words, vanity, and so forth. So ladies and gentlemen, we finished with the false teachers of chapter two of Second Peter three of Second Peter two. And next audio we'll talk about in verses 1-13 through in 2 Peter 3 we'll talk about the day of the Lord so we've gone from a Calvinist-Armenian debate now we'll go to an eschatological debate 2nd Peter's got some difficult stuff in it so I hope you stay tuned for that audio I hope you enjoyed this one